Welcome to Theologize That, the podcast of Kieran School of Bible and Ministry at Kentucky Christian University in Grayson, Kentucky. Our mission is to enlist, educate, and equip missional leaders with a worldwide view grounded in biblical authority to advance God's purposes, to benefit the church, and to mobilize disciples in response to Christ's Great Commission. Information about our institution of higher learning may be found at www.kcu.edu. Now, enjoy this month's podcast. Welcome to Theologize That, a podcast of the Kiran School of Bible and Ministry at Kentucky Christian University. We are in Grayson, Kentucky. My name is Dennis Durst, and I'll be your host for this session. And uh, my guest today is Dr. Scott Colley. Uh, Dr. Colley is a professor of New Testament here at KCU. Scott, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Tell us just a little bit about your experience here at KCU, how long you've been here, and what you do. Well, I'm going on 12 years here, and I teach the New Testament classes, and I teach Greek. Very good. Uh, our topic today is going to be the birth narratives uh, in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, and uh, this is going to be broadcast around the time of Christmas 2023. So, uh, But before we touch on those specific passages, I have a couple of questions just kind of to frame this. How do we relate on how we do relate uh, New Testament interpretation to theology? So my first question, Scott, is this. What does it mean to say each of the four Gospels has its own unique theology? Uh, for example, how does Luke challenge us with the message of the good news to the poor? Okay. Theology is what is derived from exegesis. That is the systematic and close study of the text of the individual documents. And then when we talk about biblical theology, we first have to talk about the theology of each individual book. We can break that down topically, the theology of this or that topic, soteriology or salvation, eschatology, end time views, Christology is where I focus. Christology, what, what are the gospels, individual books, their views of Christ? I'm more and more struck by the fact that the whole New Testament is Christological. So when we look at the, each individual book, we're asking, what are they trying to tell us? What is the story here? What were they doing for their original audience? And you get different answers for that in each case, but each one gives us a picture of the story of Jesus with theological emphases. The old view of the Gospels as these are just four guys on each corner of an intersection watching the same bad traffic accident from four different points of view. That's okay, but that's a limited view of what the Gospels really do, because what you really get is each of the Gospels retells the story of Jesus for people, many of whom know this story very well, some of whom were raised in the church their whole life. And uh, we're retelling the story for certain purposes and emphasizing certain things. Now, you brought up Luke and his good news to the poor. In Luke's gospel, Jesus kicks off his ministry in the synagogue of Nazareth, chapter 4, verse 16. He reads Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and says, Today these things have been fulfilled in your hearing. What we should notice is that Luke starts his story of Jesus' public ministry right there, but Luke knows, and the people in Nazareth at that synagogue know, that Jesus has already 
already been healing and doing miracles and preaching in other places. And they say, do hear the stuff we've heard you've been doing over there. And so Luke has made a choice. Luke has chosen to start his story of Jesus's public ministry right here with Isaiah 61. And that's, that's a key passage that introduces the idea of the gospel good news to the poor. And then you follow that theme through what, what else Luke does. And he hits this with, he hits other Isaiah passages, the response to John the Baptist when he's in prison, are you the coming one or should we wait for another? And we get parallel stuff, but other other places in Isaiah. And then Luke starts giving us his special parables, parables that only show up in, the, in Luke's gospel. But those parables tend to highlight Luke's good news to the poor as showing Jesus as the fulfillment of that Isaiah material. Very good, very good. So if we zoom out just a little bit then and move beyond, say, individual authors, uh, how does building a theology of the whole New Testament increase our biblical literacy. All right. Well, first, we have to think about what biblical literacy is. Um, I think some people just assume that this is knowing the facts of the Bible, what's in each book. Well, that's, of course, a good starting place, but that's not really what we're talking about because that's not what the gospel writers were doing. What the gospel writers do is in this retelling of the Jesus story that many of their people already knew, they take the story and they shape it in retelling to emphasize some of their specific points. That's theological. So already we should notice that their primary point is not telling the story for the historical facts of it. I mean, that's the background, of course, and that's what it's based on. But that's not their ultimate goal. So now we talk about what is their theological goal or what are their goals and uh, what are they expecting their readers and hearers to understand from all this. Then we can pick up each gospel at those points of unique interest and emphasis and we can uh, talk about the theology of Luke's gospel. So good news to the poor is a big part of Luke's uh, interest there. And, of course, what he means by poor is a broad term, broad idea, the, the outcasts. But you look at who is who are the heroes of his special parables and who are emphasized in, in this gospel. It's a lot of outgroup people. And so now we can talk about Luke's theology in that vein, in that direction. And we do similar things with Matthew. Matthew's coming at the story from a di whole different direction. So Luke's, for example, uh, emphasis on the care for the poor in the early church and Acts might be part of his overall sure. theology of the Absolutely. poor. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it's a complicated uh, story asking the question, how does the Gospel of Luke fit together with Acts? Because in some ways it dovetails very well, and some of the themes are carried on through, and in others not so much. Um, so in one sense, that's a question for the book of Acts as well. But good news to the poor, ultimately in the book of Acts, it translates into the gospel to the Gentiles. The outgroup people, the ultimate outgroup people are the Gentiles. And you read what was happening in, in uh, the book of Acts, especially in Paul's ministry. Luke emphasizes Paul's dictum. And I kind of imagine this is, this is kind of a fantasy. I doubt this happened exactly like this. But 
It almost sounds like Luke read Romans, Romans 1, 16, 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Then you look at what Luke tells us in his story of Paul's ministry, starting in chapter 13 of Acts, and uh, that's what he tells us, in fact, over and over again. But you check back to Paul's own letters, and where Luke has Paul go to the synagogue, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek, and Luke follows that pattern clear to the very end of the book of Acts. When Paul is in house arrest in Rome, he calls the Jewish leaders of the Roman community and comes and finds the good news is they haven't heard of him yet. His reputation has not preceded him to Rome, so that's a good thing. And then he preaches the gospel, but they reject the message anyway. And then he says, and he reiterates the Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 passage that Luke has started with, clear back in chapter 9 of Luke, uh, he reiterates, you know, that you're like those Israelites of Isaiah's day. You know, you pretend to hear and don't really understand. You pretend to see. And so then Paul says, and this is his parting shot, I have done my duty. I'm paraphrasing, of course. I've done my duty. I've preached the gospel to the Jew first. And now, because you have rejected it, now we go to the Gentiles. They will listen. And that's that's the end of the book of Acts. So there's a through line there that's important, but it takes an interesting turn that reading the gospel of Luke we might not predict. Fascinating. Now, our next question is really focusing a little bit more on our topic of the day, and that is Christmas and, of course, the early chapters of Matthew and Luke, which of the four Gospels, only two of them have what are called the uh, birth narratives. Mm -hmm. So what do they uniquely contribute to the distinctions between, say, a biblical theology and then our Christmas traditions that come later? Well, the first thing I like to think about, because Christmas is my absolute favorite holiday, and I, we lived in Germany for a total of about 12 years, and uh, just I love Christmas, especially how they do it there, but the tradition is so ingrained and so uh, embedded in what everything they do, you're not going to escape it. And it's true here, too. We're not going to escape tradition. <laughs> And in certain ways, we don't have to, but we do need to make a clear distinction in our mind and in our teaching. Um, what's the difference between what we do at Christmas time in our lovely, lovely traditions and uh, what, what does the scripture actually say? I mean, I'm thinking about, in, especially in uh, southeastern Germany, you get into Bavaria and then across the border into Austria, where my son studied for a couple of years. So we were over there every little while, and we love Salzburg. It's such a beautiful city. I happened to be there one year at, on January, I mean, sorry, December 6th, the beginning of the Christmas season. Over there, Christmas goes from December 6th to January 6th. December 6th is when St. Nicholas comes. And St. Nicholas is dressed up like a bishop because that's what he is. He's, a, he's the bishop that you read about in church history, except with lots of levels of uh, development tradition. And he comes and kicks off the Christmas season, and he brings gifts to children on December 6th. You leave your shoes out outside of your room on the floor and they get filled with candy magically. I tried that. Nobody put candy in my shoe, but <laughs> the um, the fun part is what else happens. Now in 
Uh, in North Germany, when St. Nicholas comes, he has a helper who ke keeps the naughty and nice list. And the helper, he is just this guy, an old man named Ruprecht. Okay, whatever. Um, you go to Salzburg in Austria and you go to B Bavaria, just close there. St. Nicholas comes and he brings Krampus. He brings the demons. And that one, that one Christmas, I was in Salzburg on the 6th of December. My son was in class and busy with schoolwork, and I was just hanging out in the marketplace. And uh, here comes St. Nicholas. I thought, I'd forgotten what day it was. I thought, oh, cool, here's St. Nicholas. I got my camera out, da-da-da. But here come the demons, and they were very convincing. They had uh, these amazing costumes, and they started heckling the tourists. I seriously thought about leaving because <laughs> this was scary enough. You know, I don't really need this kind of grief today. Then quickly realized these they were young men, probably 20-something, dressed up as demons, and they were much more interested in the young women in the crowd than they were in me. So then I realized I didn't have to worry. But uh, what, is, what is this? You know, it's just... <laughs> This is an old thing about, old European thing about scaring the bejeebers out of your kids so they behave themselves. And uh, holy smokes. So, I mean, there's a tradition there. I, I don't pretend to understand this, and I don't know really where it came from. But you look around Europe, and they do it differently. You go to Holland, and St. Nicholas's helper is Black Peter. He's a, he's a Moorish guy, and he just shows up in blackface. And there's a lot of concern nowadays. I mean, the Dutch people are concerned about this. This is a little racist, don't you think? And so, I mean, they're discussing that. But that's one of their traditions. And then his name, St. Nicholas, comes into English as Santa Claus, Santa Claus. So here we go with Santa Claus. You know, and you start looking at the American history of Santa Claus, and he gets made into the modern form in the 1920s and 30s when he start. He goes to work for Coca-Cola, and the ads with Coca-Cola. He starts wearing a red jacket. He, some of the older pictures have him in a, an old brown something or other. He looks like a homeless guy. And, uh, you know, it's just... 19th century ideas are a little weird, but all of that stuff is funny to me and interesting and enjoyable mostly, but we have to draw a distinction with what we read in the scripture. And then we go back to each text. Why is this stuff presented in this way as opposed to some other way? And you're back to the question of the theology of the individual writers. All right. And so Matthew and Luke offer some unique ideas about uh, the birth of Jesus. What, what stands out there to you in those two uh, authors? Well, we have to start Matthew at the beginning. This is the chapter, the section everybody likes to skip with those wonderful genealogies. But Matthew does some very symbolic things. He divides the genealogies into three groups of 14 generations. There's a discussion about where he comes up with this information because they're a little bit manipulated. And uh, you end up, if you count, you don't end up with 14 generations exactly each time. But Matthew makes this stylized presentation of Jesus that comes down to Joseph, the husband of Mary. And along the way, he singles out five women. And the women are very interesting women. They are some Gentiles, 
mostly Gentiles. Some of them have uh, bad reputations, and there's only five of them for all these generations. Why does he pick out these people? What is he saying? And I ask my students to raise their hands. How many of you believe that most of those men in that genealogy had a mother? Because we only get five women. So the message really comes through as Matthew is telling it that, guess what? There are some skeletons in the family closet. This is the thing. The the people hearing Matthew, the Jewish people, and Matthew's audience is Jewish Christian mostly, they know these stories very, very well. They just don't like to talk about them. This is the stuff they don't teach you in Sunday school. They would rather forget this stuff, and Matthew won't let them. So part of the message is, look, God puts his plan forward in spite of our failures, in in spite of these kind of people, in spite of our own unfaithfulness, God's plan goes forward. So there's a strong sense of uh, holiness in God's plan uh, that goes forward with or without us, I think Matthew is saying. But ultimately, Matthew is reminding his audience, his Jewish Christian audience, that yes, indeed, the gospel does go to the Gentiles. So we hear in the presentation of Matthew, Jesus say two or three times, I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he sends the disciples out to the villages of Galilee. Don't go to the Gentiles. We're here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, so the first step is the Messiah is the Messiah for Israel, lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let's do this. But Matthew keeps reminding us that's not the end of the story. And so we get the wise men, Gentiles, come in in the, in the Christmas story. And when finally get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and now the risen Jesus says, okay, now you go to the Gentiles. Go to all the world and preach the gospel, the Great Commission. And that's he, he sends his disciples now, the apostles, to uh, the whole world. So there's, there's some continuity with that theme running through the book. With Luke, I want to focus in a little bit about, we hear the voice of Mary uniquely there, and there's a lot of resonances of Old Testament in what Mary says. You want to comment on that just a little bit? Well, Luke has four canticles in his uh, birth narrative, the first two chapters. The canticles, or odes as they're called in Greek, are these songs. You read Luke's Two first two chapters, you, you feel like you're going to the opera. What's going on here? Luke does two or three different things to connect us to the Old Testament, and this is one of them. In the Old Testament, there are 10 or so of those canticles or odes that the, the Jewish community and then the early Christians were, were using in worship already. These 10 canticles are songs that show up outside of the book of Psalms. So the Jews, of course, the worship book is their book of Psalms or Psalms is really five books. These are their go-to songs, of course, their hymn book, if you want. But there's these 10 other songs that are spread around there. And then Luke adds four more, these four in the first two chapters. And the early Christians pick this right up. So our earliest list, from a Christian standpoint, has 14 odes, the 10 Old Testament ones, and Luke's four The fourth one is the Song of the Angels, which gets worked over multiple times because it's too short and it gets expanded in different ways. But the Magnificat of Mary, Mary's song is central to that. And Mary's song 
really connects back to one of the Old Testament songs, which is Hannah's song. And there's a lot of uh, connection there, a lot of parallels between Hannah's song and Mary's song. God has blessed me, but God is blessing his people. And you keep reading, and the, the blessing is God's surprise. The poor and the outcast are elevated, and Mary, of course, is exhibit A. She's a poor woman, young woman, and God elevates the poor and brings down the rich and the arrogant, and this so-called great reversal of the way humans do culture and economy and everything is being turned upside down. And it's a spiritual idea, but it, it includes human and cultural and economic implications for Christians. Very good. Now, while the early preaching of the church focused on the death and the resurrection, the core message there, the birth narratives may have come in a little later into the consciousness of the early church. But what what do they offer as a source of renewal, of focus, and of goals in contemporary worship? Well, they offer us a fuller picture of who Jesus is. Uh, I think about these in kind of parallel to what John does. John talks about the Word that was preexistent with God, and now the Word becomes flesh. This is our incarnation. John's Word is the word translated incarnation. But uh, we get a different version of that with Isaiah 7.14. We get the Greek version of Isaiah 7.14, but some of the same outcome. It gives us this divinity of Jesus that is underlying everything else that happens. And uh, it gives us, ultimately, it gives us hope. Now, I think I said earlier on that what we have to do with our study of the individual books is uh, analyze their use of these ideas. And both of the books, Matthew and Luke, cite the Greek version of Isaiah 7.14. Both of them are writing to people who would hear this material in terms of the Hellenistic world. And the Hellenistic world at that time was heavily into elevating the Caesar as divine. So on the coins, the Caesar starts with Caesar Augustus. It gets repeated over and over. The Caesar is portrayed as God. He's dressed up like Olympian Zeus on the coins. This is a message. And then the the inscription will often say, Son of God, right on the coin. So... You get this in inscriptions, you get this in in literature, but on the coins, you get this, and then you know for sure everybody, everybody is exposed to this, because in the artwork, poor people would never see that, but everybody has to deal with the coins. So one of the things the Caesars did when they were elevated, it's propaganda for them. They're, They're trying to convince the Roman public that they are worthy of this job and uh, they will put forward their divine credentials. And there's, here's the story about the Caesar who healed people. And here's a story about the Caesar who was born of a virgin. So the people from this Hellenistic world, Luke's audience and even Matthew's audience, they're going to be very familiar with that, those kind of claims. But here comes Jesus, who is proclaimed Son of God. 
in a different way and proclaimed Lord. And this, this is head-on confrontation with the Hellenistic culture and with the Caesar's propaganda machine. Jesus Christ is Lord and Caesar, therefore, is not. And Jesus is Son of God and therefore Caesar is not. So uh, it starts in that kind of a context and then when the early Christian movement moves past some of those issues, which it, eventually they do, the doctrine, I guess you could say, the teaching is still there. We, we lose a little of the origin context, but it gets recontextualized in the worship of the church. And so if I'm understanding your question about worship, yeah, we, this, is, this is singing glory to God uh, for the great things he has done for us and uh, the dwelling place of God is with man. I mean, this is the book of Revelation. Or Emmanuel, God with us, uh, right. the, the name of Jesus in Matthew's exactly. account. Exactly, exactly. Very good. All right. Uh, our last question is, uh, what does Luke especially teach regarding the role of the Holy Spirit? And uh, maybe connect that with just our disciplines of reading Scripture, interpreting it, applying it. Luke really gives us a a great deal of the theology of the Spirit, but would you comment on that a little bit? Luke really wants to talk about the Holy Spirit, and if you're paying attention, you hear the activity of the Holy Spirit from day one, from Luke chapter one. Even before Jesus is born, the Spirit is active. Now, there were some Jews at the time period who believed that God was withholding His Spirit from Israel, uh, waiting for the Messiah to come. And some of them allegedly thought this was kind of their spiritual discipline and punishment even, that kind of was a holdover from the exile. It's not clear how many Jews believe that, but apparently some did. And Luke is now saying, look, the Spirit is here. It's a big, uh, not a red flag, it's a green flag. It's a big flag that says, looky, looky, the Spirit is active. So the people paying attention to what Luke is saying know that this is uh, telegraphing to his audience that something big is happening, and even more than that, the coming of the Spirit is connected with the coming of the Messiah. So, and we follow through, Jesus stands up in Luke 4 that reads Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Today these things are being fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the guy, is what he says. And then we follow all the way through to the day of Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ, says Peter. God raised him, and Peter rewrites Joel right here. Peter says, Joel says, he quotes Joel. Joel says, in the last day I will pour out, God says, in the last day I will pour out my spirit. But Peter says, God gave to him, Jesus, who's at, seated at his right hand, he gave him the spirit, and he, Jesus, pours out the spirit on you, which you now see and hear. And so this this is uh, the kind of the culmination of the story about the activity of the spirit that is announcing just by his presence and then by his direction, announcing the messianic reign and, and ministry of Jesus. Well, I really want to thank you, Dr. Colley, for sharing uh, just a lot of great insights there into how we connect our reading of the birth narratives, but of the New Testament even more generally, to our development of a theology. Theology being the literally the study of God. Mm -hmm. and of course, we study God uh, by studying God's Word. And so uh, thank you for devoting your life to 
teaching us how to rightly handle the word of truth. And so I just want to extend uh, my thanks and the audience's thanks to you today for sharing all that. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us here on Theologize That. I'm Dennis Durst, and remember to visit the school website. That's www.kcu.edu, and you can navigate from there to the Curran School of Bible and Ministry. You can find out more about us. May God richly bless you. Bye-bye.